joy and goodwill to everyone. Here we are again with your Christmas magazine. The opening music we used today was, anyone know? Everyone knew. <laughs> and used in Space Odyssey, wasn't it, 2001? That was my next question. <laughs> okay, deep that one. Uh, what was the name of the uh, robot in that? Name of the... The, the robot, in, or no, the computer that went mad in 2001 Space oh, Odyssey. I can't remember that, no. no I, I've never done sci-fi. Okay, right, fine. <laughs> Me moving on. Uh, this 2017 Christmas edition of your magazine is, as always, being recorded here in Colin Chance House, deep in the heart of Worcester, and my name is Barry Hurd. Once again, and stating the obvious, this spectacular can be sent to you without those wonderful people who will copy this magazine onto those little tiny sticks you are listening to right now, and they are Janet Weaver Hello. and Carol Hartley. Well done, the two of them. Although what? Uh, no. Oh, I thought. Oh, sorry, I thought we were going to say something. Not forget our engineer. Oh no, no, I'm here. That's just next line on here. <laughs> and as usual, once again, stating the obvious. I've done that bit. Sorry, you're interrupting me. Uh, and. As usual, in the massive technical part of our studio here in Colin Chance House, behind the big glass window is our ever-cheerful engineer and techie, Duncan Wynn. Thank you all. A Merry Christmas to you, sir. Take that stupid hat off. <laughs> uh, right. right, round the table with me today are should be three gentlemen, but unfortunately one of them hasn't turned up yet. So we have two, all of whom, or both of whom, I brought along some stories of their own to entertain you with. This, of course, makes my job easier. So, as you introduce yourself, chaps, please give our audience an idea of what you've got in store for them. Oh, thank you very much, Barry. I'm Brian Edwards. A few bits and pieces I brought along, contrasting things. One from Groucho Marx, um, a couple of poems... Modern Christmas Eve in the Black Country and a bit of background to the somewhat humorous side of workings in the Houses of Parliament. I'm Barney Burnham and I have got um, something from one of the Rumpole stories uh, where Rumpole tells an American about pantomimes. Uh, you can imagine what happens. And then we have some advice on buying Christmas presents, as was printed in Vanity Fair in 1915 under the name P. Brookhaven, who actually is rather more famous than you might think. Right, um, all of us have in front of us, except for I can't find mine at the moment, um, some dates, uh, things that happened in December. So, Brian, would you like to start... Uh, yeah, I'll do, shall I do two or three yeah, first and then hand over to Barney? Barney. Okay. I'll, I'll pick out two or three. Right. Amongst many other events, December over the years has seen the birth of John Milton, the abdication of Edward VIII, and the Boston Tea Party. But going back to the 1st of December, back in 1135, England's King Henry I died. He'd fallen ill seven days earlier after being very greedy and eating too many lampreys. 
like a jawless eel. He was 66 at that point and had ruled for 35 years. Jumping ahead to the 2nd of December in 1697, Sir Christopher Wren's St Paul's Cathedral opened. Jumping much further towards modern times, on the 3rd of December 1989, the Cold War finally ended after 52 years of superpower rivalry. The Soviet leader, Mikhail Gorbachev, and the US President, George Bush Sr., ended their shipboard summit meeting off Malta. And they were off the little town of Massa Schlock, I seem to recall. Fourth of clever, he's clever, isn't he? Clever. I've been there. (laughs) Fourth of December, 1872. The crew from the British brigantine Di Grazia, or Gracia, I'm not sure how you would pronounce that actually, but G-R-A-T-I-A, boarded a deserted ship drifting in the mid-Atlantic. The captain's table was set for a meal aboard the US ship Marie Celeste, but the captain, crew and passengers were all missing. And still are. Beamed up by Scotty. 5th of December 1905, the roof of Charing Cross Railway Station in London collapsed, killing five people. And the 6th of December 1921, Ireland's 26 southern states, uh, I think it's probably counties, isn't it? States? They weren't states. uh, Were granted independence from Britain, becoming the Irish Free State. Ulster in the north remains part of the UK, although actually Ulster is split between the two because there are six counties form Northern Ireland and the other three are in the Republic. They're in the Republic, yeah. Ca- uh, Cavan, Monaghan and... Uh, he uh, is clever, uh, isn't he? Donegal. Donegal. Yeah. Donegal. Yes. Right, on 7th of December 1783, William Pitt became Prime Minister and Chancellor of the Exchequer at the tender age of 24. He was William Pitt the Younger. Yes. December 1980, 46-year-old ex-Beatle John Lennon was murdered in New York. Oh, 40-year-old, I do believe. I've got dyslexia, you know. Uh, that was a shame about John Lennon. Uh, it's one of those sort of things you remember where you were when he was killed, I think. He was in a pub about to go into a play featuring Ralph Richardson and Laurence Olivier. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I was in a pub as well, surprising one. <laughs> Where were you, Brian? Probably doing the washing up. <laughs> <laughs> uh, what else we got? Uh, December 1608, birthday John Milton, English poet, whose works include Paradise Lost, Paradise Regained, and Samson Agonistes. Agon- Agon- I did it for A-level. Did you really? Unfortunately. Again. And survived. Um, <laughs> Brian, could you give us a few more? Yes, yeah, right. Go to the 10th of December... In 1901, saw the very first Nobel Peace Prizes awarded, worth thirty thousand dollars each. I repeat, 1901. Nobel, the Swedish chemist, had died five years earlier, left his entire fortune to the awarding foundation, the fortune that he'd amassed from his invention. Dynamite. (laughs) The interesting thing about that was the dollar was worth about. Five, five four, to the pound. Four to five. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. That's what yeah. I remember from yeah. arithmetic when I was at school. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Sorry, Brian. Yeah, okay, right then. The eleventh. Looking at the eleventh of December, that was in the year nineteen thirty-six that Edward the Eighth renounced the throne in his radio broadcast to the nation. 
After the broadcast, he boarded a ship and joined the twice-divorced Mrs. Wallace Simpson in France. 12th of December 1955, British engineer Christopher Cockrell painted a new, patented a new kind of vehicle, half ship, half aircraft. His hovercraft floated on an air cushion. And then, going back to the 14th of December, in the previous century, 1895, was the date of birth of King, who eventually King George VI, who succeeded to the throne when his brother Edward VIII abdicated. And then, obviously, nothing interesting has ever happened on the 15th of December because we go to the 16th of December in 1773 when unruly American colonists boarded three ships in Boston Harbour and emptied 342 chests of tea into the sea. That, of course, has become known as the Boston Tea Party. Taxation without representation was their big thing, wasn't it? 17th of December, 1778, birthday of Sir Humphrey Davy, English inventor of the safety lamp for miners, and he also discovered sodium, magnesium, calcium, barium, and strontium. And the 18th of December, 1946, Clement Attlee's Labour government won the vote on state ownership, which led to the nationalising of the railways, ports and mines, etc., not to mention the NHS. Which they introduced. Yeah. Yeah. The the interesting thing about uh, Christopher Cockrell um, was the first hovercraft that I ever saw on television didn't have the rubber... Skirting. skirting and it was like a it was like a spaceship floating mm. above the, and also the other thing i remember but he had to go to america eventually to get the funding for it to oh. develop it nothing changes yeah. well no it's going to say a surprise invention. Yeah. Yeah. It's our, it's our state yeah. policy i think oh absolutely yeah let's throw it away to the yanks uh 1940 oh, sorry 1840 emily bronte english author of wuthering heights dies of tuberculosis at the tender age of 30, which is rather sad. Uh, what have we got on the other side? Uh, 20th of December 1803, United States doubles in size when it acquires... Umpteen. <laughs> yeah, 88,800... No. Oh, no, my God. No, no it's, it's a million, isn't it? It's 88, 88 million, 831. Is it that big? No. <laughs> I think we've got the point in the wrong place. Somewhere, well, somewhere. it's from the decimal, uh, from yeah. the internet. This is, yeah. you know, uh, uh, anyway, I'll say, on 20th of December 1803, the United States doubles its size when it acquires an awful lot of square miles of land. That's square miles as well, it's yeah. not acres mm-hmm. or anything. Yeah. Uh, from France. Um, guess how much they paid? 15 million. I bet they regret it now, the French. Well, the Louisiana Purchase. But of course, it wasn't just the current, the present Louisiana state, it was pretty well the whole central belt. Yeah, that was huge. then known. Um, that's why it was so many. Uh, December the 22nd, James Edward Stuart, son of James II, the deposed Catholic King of England, lands in uh, North East Scotland to lead a Jacobite rebellion that all went wrong. Well, that's enough of that. That's enough of that. Um, right, where's my, my notes? Uh, right, just a quick one. Have you got anything good planned for Christmas, either of you? Survival. <laughs> <laughs> um, working out, well, well, deciding that my New Year's resolution will be to have a New Year's resolution next year. No, that's probably Very a good sound. Idea. Yeah. That's sound policy. 
Yes, yes, we've got. Uh, we're having Christmas on our own. My partner Kate and I. Yes, we found that's the very best idea. Too many screaming kids tend to spoil it. <laughs> At least with grand grandchildren, you can give them back. <laughs> so it is said. Yeah. Right, uh, we've had the past, let's have some news since our last magazine. The easiest way to improve your mood and your life, apparently, we're told by the Daily Telegraph, is to take time each day to focus on the simple things that bring you joy. So here's some uplifting, feel-good news stories. Prince Harry, of course, as everybody knows, has got engaged to American actress Meghan Markle. They are to be married sometime next spring, and rumours has it that they might live in Herefordshire near ross on rye Here's some funny stories. Brian, would you like well, to... Well, I was just going to say that uh, I did see an unfortunate headline, and I won't say where it was. It was on the internet, and it simply said, um, unemployed ex-soldier to marry divorced actress. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I saw an even more basic one than that. It simply said, man to marry woman. <laughs> <laughs> right, do you want jokes or do you want love at first sight? No, let's have love at first sight. Right-o. Love at first sight. Not as unrealistic as you might think. Plenty of us remain sceptical over the alleged love at first sight phenomenon, believing it to belong only in movies and cheesy romance novels. In an age of apps like Bumble or Telegraph Dating, digital innovation can give the impression that old-fashioned notions have fallen by the wayside. The reality is, they're quite compatible. Many young people continue to believe in love at first sight, even in the age of the internet, and studies have shown that they may be onto something. Love at first sight does happen more often than we think, especially for older adults. One study from the online retirement community Retire Savvy found that people in later life are more able to tell if they're attracted to something from the moment they first look at them. One in four people aged 65 or older said they can confidently tell within seconds whether they're attracted to a new date whereas only 19% of those aged 45 plus could say the same. People in their 60s were also revealed to be more likely to end a date within minutes if they don't immediately take to the person they're with. The study also reveals as we get older we start to know exactly what we want in life and becoming less inclined to compromise our wishes. 77% of over 65 said they have a clear life plan in mind, compared with only 55% of people in their 40s. The results showed that singletons in later life are much more likely to know where they want to go or what they want to do on a date, as well as knowing where they hope the relationship will lead. In contrast, less than half of people in their 40s could say the same thing. Additionally, a study in people aged 45 and older found that having someone to talk to becomes more important with age. And having fun and sexual chemistry becomes less important for those entering their 50s. 
Andrew Sheen, the editor of Retire Savvy, commented, It's a myth that life ends when you reach your later years. Whether it's meeting new people, clubbing or through online dating, there's an image of the over 55s that's at least a decade out of date. Far from being past it and happy to settle, the over 55s are among the most confident when it comes to dating and romance. Our survey finds the over 55s know what they want from a relationship and they're not afraid to take the lead to get it. While in most cases it's a companion to share interests and the second half of their lives with, there are still many vivacious people in their 50s and 60s who are very interested in continuing their sex lives. Uh, the next article was supposed to be read by Alan, but he's not here at the moment still. Uh, I hope he's all right. Um, so Barney's going to uh, tell us uh, some advice on how to live longer. Yes, it actually says here nutrition advice. I think that probably means nutrition. Well, I think it's from, it's from the internet. <laughs> yes. So some nutrition advice. Live for now, live for longer. Knowing what's right for your age and the season is the key to fitness, says Seven Seas nutrition consultant Helen Bond. As a nation, we're living longer than ever, which is great news. But it's less fun getting older if your health is compromised. We need to keep our bodies in as good a condition as we can for those extra years. Some people are very good at it, but as a nation, we have room for improvement. People think they can go on eating what they did in their 20s. The truth is you need to adapt your diet and lifestyle according to your age. As we get older, we start to lose muscle mass. Those extra calories that you used to burn off will now make you fat. So it's important both to keep up with your exercise and to watch what you eat. Switch to slow-release carbohydrates such as brown bread, brown rice, and what I'm assured is pronounced quinoa, is it? This trendy yeah, thing yeah, that I, I wouldn't recognise one if it came up and said hello to me. Does anyone know what it is? No. No. Expensive, <laughs> probably. Anyway, we move on. Only about two in five British adults get their five portions of fruit and veg a day. Most of us don't eat the recommended 30 grams of fibre a day, and oily fish consumption is below the recommended 140 grams per week. White fish or tin tuna are not a rich source of the omega-3 fats we need for healthy eyes, heart and brains. We need to eat more mackerel, salmon and herring. Now, eating seasonally. Take advantage of the ebb and flow of seasonal produce to bring variety to your diet. Spring brings cauliflower, spinach, purple sprouting broccoli and kale, which is fantastic for eye health. And green beans, watercress and lettuce are not far behind. Switch to slow-release carbohydrates such as brown bread, brown rice, quinoa again and buckwheat. You'll feel fuller for longer and have more energy, little and often. That's the key. It's more sustainable in the long term than a drastic overhaul. Vitamin D levels drop in the colder months without the sunshine that helps our bodies produce it. After omega-3 nutrients, it's the most important ingredient in cod liver oil. You need it for bone health, so keep eating dairy products and oily fish. Vitamin C is essential for your immune system and also needed for its anti-aging role in making collagen in skin. It's in lots of vegetables as well as citrus fruits. Zinc is important too for healthy skin, nails and hair. You'll find it in red meat, nuts and seeds. Little and often. 
Small changes make a big difference in the long term. It could be as simple as eating more fruit and veg, increasing your fibre intake, taking a cod liver oil supplement, exploring seasonal foods, or taking a bit more exercise each day. Little and often, that's the key. It's much more sustainable in the long term than a drastic overhaul. Living in the present means adapting your lifestyle to your age. If you want to feel fit and well, make those changes. It's a privilege to live longer in the age of modern medicine. It's up to you to live those extra years in good health. Amen to that. Can I add something? Yeah, you can. Of course you can. Uh, Very sound advice. It just reminded me that fairly recently a friend of mine went on a pre-retirement course, big flash country hotel. He was pretty senior in his company, 20 or 30 guys, all men there. And uh, of course, I asked him how he got on and he said, well, it was very good. I was very pleased to go on it. Lots of the stuff you'd expect to hear, very sound advice on diet and lifestyle and exercise and good stuff on the financial side too. But the one thing that two of the leaders emphasised more than once was for a happy, successful retirement, above all, listen to your wife. (laughs) (laughs) That's it, folks. That's all you need. Thank you. Here's a fun story about Palmerston. The Foreign Office Cat. Documents released under the Freedom of Information laws show Palmerston, (laughs) named after former Foreign Secretary and two-time Prime Minister Viscount Palmerston, caught almost 30 mice since he came from Battersea Dogs and Cats Home. That was in uh, 2016, I believe, I read somewhere. Palmerston, the Foreign Office Cat has proved to be West Westminster's top mouser, Palmerson puts number 10 rival, Larry, to shame, as Foreign Office claims its top cat has killed 27 mice or more. The current occupant of number 10 has been cast as ineffective by rivals at the Foreign Office, who, by rivals at the Foreign Office, or repeat, who could that be? <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> who was that? Who, who was that? Yeah. You. Yeah, that's about as clear as his speech is, Arthur Simons. Uh, anyway, who was... <laughs> I'll start again. The current occupant of number 10 has been cast as ineffective by a rival at the Foreign Office, who could that be, I wonder, who is trying to prove his killer instincts and what it takes to be in number one since his arrival in Westminster since April uh, 2016. However, this is not a tale of power struggle between Theresa May and Boris Johnson, but a feline proxy war, which has allowed the Foreign Secretary to get one over on the Prime Minister. Yes, we all must agree he's got the best of. Oh, come on, that's Alan, isn't it? Anyway, we all must agree he's got the best pussy. <laughs> yes, yes, thank you. Palmerston. A prolific record is likely to heap further pressure on the performance of Larry, the number 10 cat, who was pictured earlier this year playing with a mouse. Was it a British mouse or a European one, we ask? (laughs) I thought that was funny. (laughs) Before allowing it to escape in a clear dereliction of duties. The Foreign Office uh, said it was unable to provide details of the cost of Palmerston, uh, but he said that the bills for the cat and the food, etc., were paid by volunteer staff. 
A uh, number 10 insiders have said in the past that Larry has been happily snoozing while on duty, allowing mice to scurry right under his nose. So this presents the sort of mental image that the Foreign Office and Number 10 have just covered in mice all over the place, you know, exactly. which... which uh, I think we should pause. Mice and men. Pause? Pause? Yeah. Very good. If there's a clause in the contract. Yeah, indeed, indeed. Anyway, uh, right. I, but do you, this is the... Yes, yes, yes this you, is for you. You, you may... Uh, <laughs> some of you may recall what... Um, Oscar Wilde said about good advice. The only thing you could possibly do with good advice was pass it on to others, as it was never the slightest use to oneself. So as a non-cat owner, I pass on to you some very valuable advice about bathing your cat. These are clear instructions on the best way to bathe your cat. Number one, thoroughly clean the toilet. Two, add the required amount of shampoo to the toilet water and have both lids lifted. Three, obtain the cat and soothe him while you carry him towards the bathroom. Number four, now we get technical. In one smooth movement, put the cat in the toilet and close both lids. Now you may need to stand on the lid so he can't escape. Caution! Do not get any part of your body too close to the edge as his paws will be reaching out to grab anything they can find. The cat will self-agitate and make ample suds. Never mind the noises that come from your toilet, the cat is actually enjoying this procedure. 5. Flush the toilet three or four times. This provides a power wash and rinse, which I have found to be quite effective. 6. Now have someone open the door to the outside and ensure that there are no people between the toilet and the outside door. Number seven, stand behind the toilet as far as you can and then quickly lift both lids. Leading to number eight, the now clean cat will rocket out of the toilet and run outside where he will happily dry himself. If your toilet is no, attached... No, wait, 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 you didn't finish. Oh, did I not? It says, sincerely, the dog. <laughs> Say that. <laughs> if your toilet is attached to the wall, how do you stand behind it? It's quiet. <laughs> this is a dog. Dog's <laughs> doing well, there's the logical one to follow on from that. It's five benefits from owning a pet. Oh, that's right, yes. Yeah. Sorry, uh, sorry, Alan not being here screwed mm. things up slightly. So, there we are then. Five yes, benefits for owning a pet. Now, for some people, the idea of welcoming a dog or cat into their home seems like an influx of responsibility and obligation they would rather avoid. But for devoted pet owners, their furry friends are beloved members of the family with whom they share a mutually beneficial relationship. Whichever camp you fall into, it can't hurt to brush up on the many benefits of owning a pet. If you're reluctant to take the plunge, these facts may convince you. And if you're a long-time pet parent, they'll serve as a welcome reminder as to how your little furball has improved your life. From the emotional and social impact of their presence to the physical and mental benefits, having Fido the dog or Garfield the cat 
or Tommy the Tarantula, no, I made that one up, around the house, might just be the boost you didn't even know you needed. Fitness. Pets need regular activity, and if a dog becomes your pet of choice, you'll also be signing up for brisk daily walks to help your furry friend keep in shape. In turn, you'll also feel the benefit of regular low-impact exercise. According to a recent survey, 36% of pet owners said that having a pet has helped them lose weight. Who needs a personal trainer? Who indeed? Social. Believe it or not, having an animal can even have an impact on your social life. In a good way. Walking the dog around the local park or taking it to obedience lessons, just two settings where you'll have the opportunity to meet new faces and interact with people you might not otherwise have come into contact with. And don't be surprised if you're stopped by strangers in the street who are eager to pat your furry friend and find out more about him or her. Childhood learning and responsibility. Now, having a pet in the home is a great way for children to learn valuable life lessons in a fun and rewarding way. From the daily responsibility of feeding, exercising and caring for the animal to understanding more about illness and loss. It can equip your children or grandchildren with the emotions to cope better with important life events as they grow up. Companionship. The sheer presence of a pet in the home can boost your mood, especially after a hectic day at the office or even following a difficult conversation. The stresses of life can melt away as soon as you walk through the front door and see your beloved pet desperate for your affection. Said animal will also be your go-to companion of choice to watch a movie with or cuddle up to read a book with on a cold winter's day. What's better than a furry hot water bottle who listens to every word you say and doesn't answer back? Mental health. Not only do pets provide companionship and help improve your physical health, they can also provide therapeutic and emotional benefits. According to Ingrid Collins, a consultant psychologist at the London Medical Centre, a pet is better than Prozac. Animals have a completely different agenda to humans and bring things back to basics. They want comfort, feeding and love. In return, they give huge affection. Ah. Oh, and you got another joke. Yes, there, well, we've got a couple of items here that are really aimed at the, shall we say, the more mature generation. Um, the first one relates to hearing problems. An elderly gentleman had got serious hearing problems for a number of years. He went to the doctor, and after usual tests, he was fitted with a set of new hearing aids and then allowed him a 100% improvement in his hearing. He went back in a month to the doctor for a checkup, and the doctor said, Wonderful, your hearing is perfect. Your family must be really pleased that you can hear again. The elderly gentleman replied, Oh, I haven't told my family yet. I just sit around and listen to the conversations, and I've changed my will three times. <laughs> Two elderly couples were enjoying friendly conversation when one of, the men asked the, one of the men asked the other, Fred, how was that memory clinic you went to last month? It was outstanding, said Fred. They taught us all the latest psychological techniques, visualisation, association. It's made a big difference, big difference for me. Well, that's great. Tell me then, what, what was the name of that clinic? Fred went blank. He thought and thought but couldn't remember. 
Then a smile broke across his face and he said, Oh, come on, tell me, what do you call that flower with the long stem and thorns? Uh, oh, you mean a rose? That's it. He turned to his wife. Rose, what was the name of that clinic? <laughs> <laughs> we got some uh, Christmas jokes on there. Uh, Barney, have you got some Christmas jokes? Uh, yes, I would like to apologise <laughs> <laughs> sincerely in advance. Did you hear that Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer never went to school? That's right. He was elf-taught. Oh, <laughs> they get worse. Could they? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You want me to do the next one? Or do you, oh, do well, I'll, do, I'll be I'll doing do two or three. Well. <laughs> okay, thank you. Why does Santa have three garden plots up at the North Pole? That way he can ho, ho, ho. I'm losing the will to live. A four-year-old to her two-year-old sister. Let's play Christmas. I'll be Santa and you can be a present I give away. No, no response. Okay, fine. I once bought my kid a set of batteries for Christmas with a note saying, toys not included. <laughs> Okay, that'll do. Right, okay, we're going to have um, some Christmas music. So, uh, while I set the thing up, it's a, please talk amongst you. Another joke, Barney, while I get this Another going. Another joke? Yeah. Oh, dear. Who delivers Christmas presents to good little sharks when they're sleeping? Santa Jaws. <laughs> it says a lot that oh, that's no. the best of the lot so far. I'll oh, do you another one then. Well, what, go on, Wallace. This is, oh, this, this is, you've got to work this one out. What do you get when you combine a Christmas tree with an iPad? Sorry. A pineapple. <laughs> right, here's some uh, Christmas music for you that are slightly better than the jokes. Sweet silver bells, wolves seem to say through a 
I do apologise for the glitches in there. I did play it a couple of times before I brought it here today, and it was fine. So um, Murphy's Law wins again. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. I wrote that last one. I don't know that one. Yeah. Oh, my, I can't. I did write a list down, but I left it at home. My, <laughs> Another glitch. My favourite of all, of course, is Still Nacht. Mm. Silent Night. Yeah, 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 yeah. I spent some time in Germany. Ah, <laughs> oh, but it was written in Austria. Oh, was it? Gruber. A, a church near Salzburg was where it was first performed. Full of information, isn't it? <laughs> There's no limit. There's no limit. Yes, yes, yes. Do you want our little story or we break um, it now? No, or? I was going to say, could you do the, um, the history one? Uh, there's a there's a there's a history of uh, the doomsday. Uh, yeah, a little yeah. bit about uh, Worcester in the doomsday Straightforward, yes. Yeah, yeah. Bit of history. For doomsday time. in Worcestershire. The difficulties of analysing and interpreting Doomsday Book, commissioned by William the Conqueror at Gloucester late in 1085, are enormous. Mm. But the document does provide a unique glimpse of the county at the beginning of the medieval period. For most rural communities, 
The number of villeins or villagers, bordars or smallholders, and slaves or serfs were listed. Villeins were the most favoured peasant group, holding up to 30 acres in the common fields. In return for this, they owed service to the manor, usually paid by working on the lord's lands for an agreed number of days. Bordars also had feudal duties, but their landholding was smaller, often about five acres. The lowest status group, of course, were the serfs, who rarely owned land and spent most of their time working on the demesnes, that is, the land farmed directly by the lord of the manor or his bailiff. Some villeins and bordars must sometimes have practised other crafts. These were not always listed. As is shown by the fact that there were 104 mills in the county there, but only three millers recorded. There are occasional references to a beekeeper, a huntsman, a cowman, two dairymaids, eight swineherds, as well as 61 priests, an unusually large number for a doomsday county. Again, the number of village officials listed, 15 reeves and five beadles, was larger than for many counties. Worcestershire's bureaucracy wins again, you see. Of the 4,341 persons noted in Doomsday Worcestershire, 1,717 were Bordars, 1,604 were Villains, and 704 were Serfs, the remaining 316 forming a miscellaneous group. Worcestershire is unusual in being the only Midlands county which had more Bordars than Villains, the average ratio being nearly one Bordar to two Villains. The only towns listed were Worcester, Droitwich and Pershaw. But in each case, the record is ambiguous. Both Worcester and Droitwich had at least 150 houses, but Pershaw much smaller, with only 28 Burgesses recorded. That should be a great slogan for the county, shouldn't it? More Bordars than Villains. Welcome to Worcestershire. <laughs> Now, here is some business advice. Well, I'm not sure it's business advice, but it's a, a story about business partners. A very successful businessman had a meeting with his new son-in-law. I love my daughter, and now I welcome you into the family, said the man. To show you how much we care for you, I'm making you a 50-50 partner in my business. All you have to do is go to the factory every day and learn the operations. The son-in-law interrupted, I hate factories, I can't stand the noise. I see, replied the father-in-law. Well, then you'll work in the office and take charge of some of the operations. I hate office work, said the son-in-law. I can't stand being stuck behind a desk all day. Wait a minute, said the father-in-law. I just made you a half-owner of a profitable corporation, but you don't like factories and you won't work in an office. What am I going to do with you? Easy, said the young man. Buy me out. <laughs> I always think that young people think they have all the answers, but... They don't actually even know what the questions are. And by the time you're old enough to know what the answers are, you've forgotten what the questions were. Very true, yeah. Uh, while I was working at a store as a Santa, a boy asked me for an electric train set. If you get your train, I told him, your daddy's going to want to play with it too. Is that all right? The boy became very quiet. So moving the conversation along, I asked... What else would you like Santa to bring you? He promptly replied, another train set. 
Prime. Well, what I've got left here, it's my turn to create the ouch factor with some more <laughs> dreadful Christmas jokes. Good grief. <laughs> you you see, right on, right on cue. What is, sorry, not what is, who is Santa's favourite singer? The answer can only be Elvis Presley. <laughs> what do the elves call it when Father Christmas claps his hands at the end of a play? Santa Claus. <laughs> Why does Santa insist on having three gardens? That's so he can ho, ho, ho. Ah, oh, but I've already told that one. I didn't realise that. I must have been asleep <laughs> at the time. Well, I you. think it sent you into a trance. I'm sure yeah. it did, No, we, yes. we're all the Well, I, like, I, don't think we've, I don't think we've had this one. What do you call Chris Kringle when he goes on his wife's health insurance? He becomes a dependent clause. <laughs> now, that's not bad, actually. Well, that is rather better. What do you get? If Santa goes down the chimney when a fire is lit, a crisp Kringle, that that's nearly follows that one, yeah? Yes, yes. And what do you call people who is afraid of Santa Claus? Claustrophobic. <laughs> I think uh, we'll take the break now. Uh, and recover. Yeah, we'll recover from my head against the wall. Yeah, 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 right. <laughs> Well, hello, we're back after our short break, getting a nice cup of coffee, and we've got some mince pies because of the time of year. And um, I'd like to hand over now to Brian, who's got a story he brought in. It's one of your choice, so over right, to you, sir. Thank you. Well, this relates to humorous letter writing in post-war America, which was very much enlivened by the publication in the 1960s of a collection from Groucho Marx. <laughs> And this is the details of Groucho's remarkable duel with the Warner Brothers, or rather their baffled and unamusable legal department. When the Marx Brothers were about to make a film called A Night in Casablanca, there were threats of legal action from Warner Brothers, who five years before had made the film simply called Casablanca with Humphrey Bogart and Ingrid Bergman as stars. Whereupon Groucho, speaking on behalf of all the brothers, immediately dispatched the following letter. Dear Warner Brothers, Apparently there's more than one way of conquering a city and holding as your own. For example, up to the time we contemplated making this film, I'd no idea the city of Casablanca belonged exclusively to Warner Brothers. However, it was only a few days after our announcement appeared that we received your long, ominous legal document warning us not to use the name Casablanca. It would seem to us that back in 1471, Ferdinand Balboa Warner, your great-great-great-etc. grandfather, while looking for a shortcut to the city of Burbank, had stumbled on the shores of Africa and... Raising his alpenstock, named the place Casablanca. I don't really understand your attitude. Even if you plan on re-releasing your film, I'm sure the average movie fan could learn in time to distinguish between Ingrid Bergman and Harpo. <laughs> I don't know whether I could, but I'm certainly willing to give it a try. 
You claim that you own Casablanca and that no one else can use that name without your permission. Now what about Warner Brothers? Do you own that too? You probably have the right to use the name Warner, but what about Brothers? Professionally, we were brothers long before you were. We were touring the sticks as the Marx Brothers when Vitaphone was still a gleam in the inventor's eye. And look at all the other brothers, the Smith Brothers, the Brothers Karamazov. Dan Brothers, an outfielder at Detroit. And what about Brother Can You Spare a Dime? Oh, dear, dear, dear. Now, this all seems to add up to a pretty bitter tirade. I assure you, it's not meant to. I love Warner. Some of my best friends are Warner Brothers. It's even possible I'm doing you an injustice and that you yourselves know nothing at all about this dog in a attitude. It wouldn't surprise me to discover the heads of your legal department are unaware of this absurd dispute. I have a hunch this attempt to prevent us from using this title is the brainchild of some ferret-faced shyster serving a brief, brief apprenticeship in your legal department. I know the type well. Hot out of law school, hungry for success, and too ambitious to follow the natural laws of promotion. Never mind, we're all brothers under the skin and we'll remain friends until the last reel of a night in Casablanca goes tumbling over the spool. Sincerely, Groucho Marx. Now, for some curious reason, this letter seemed to puzzle Warner Brothers' legal department. They wrote back in all seriousness if they asked if the Marxes could give them some idea what the story was about. So Groucho replied... Dear Warners, there isn't much I can tell you about the story. In a play, in it, I play a doctor of divinity who ministers to the natives and, as a sideline, hawks can openers and pea jackets to the savages along the Gold Coast of Africa. When we first meet Chico, he's working in a saloon, selling sponges to barflies who can't carry their liquor. Harpo is an Arabian caddy who lives in a small Grecian urn on the outskirts of the city. As the picture opens... Porridge, a mealy-mouthed native girl, is sharpening some arrows for the hunt. Our hero is called Paul Hangover and he's constantly lighting two cigarettes at once. There are many scenes of splendour and fierce antagonisms. Colour, Abyssinian boys, running riot. Riot, in case you've never heard of it, is a small nightclub on the edge of the city. There's a lot more I can tell you. I don't want to spoil it for you. It's all been okayed by the Hayes office, good housekeeping and everyone else who matters. If the times are right, the picture can be opening in a, to a form a new worldwide disaster. Instead of mollifying them, this note seemed to puzzle the attorneys even more. They wrote back and said they still didn't understand the storyline. Would he please explain the plot in more detail? So Groucho obliged with the following. Dear brothers, since I last wrote to you, I regret to say there have been some changes in the plot of our new picture, A Night in Casablanca. In the new version, I'm playing Bordello, the sweetheart of Humphrey Bogart. Harpo and Chico are itinerant rug peddlers who are weary of laying rugs and enter a monastery for a lark. That's a good joke on them because there hasn't been a lark in that monastery for 15 years. Apart from this monastery, hard by a jetty is a waterfront hotel, chock full of apple-cheeked damsels, most of whom have been barred by the Hayes office for soliciting. In the fifth reel, Gladstone makes a speech that sets the House of Commons in an uproar, and the King promptly asks for his resignation. Harpo then marries a hotel detective. Chico operates an ostrich farm. 
Humphrey Bogart's girl Bordello spends her last years in a Bacall house. As you can see, this is a very skimpy outline. The only thing that can save us from extinction is a continuation of the film shortage. Fondly, Groucho Marx. After that, the Marx brothers heard nothing more from the Warner Brothers legal department. <laughs> Barney. Yes, thank you very much. Uh, here is something from one of the Rumpole stories, and it, it has a Christmas flavour to it. A traditional British pantomime. There's nothing to beat it. You go to the pantomime, Rumpole? Claude asked with unexpected interest. I did when I was a boy. It made a lasting impression on me. Pantomime? The American judge, who was our fellow guest around the Erskine Brown dinner table, was clearly a stranger to such delights. Is that some kind of mime show? Lots of feeling imaginary walls and no one saying anything? Not at all. You take some good old story like Robin Hood. Robin Hood's the star? Well, yes, he's played by some strapping girl who slaps her thighs and says lines like, Cheer up, babes in the wood, Robin's not far away. You mean there's cross-dressing? The American visitor was puzzled. Well, if you want to call it that, and Robin's mother is played by a fat, red-nosed comic. A female comic? No, a male one. That sounds interesting, he said in a tone that suggested he had the wrong idea. We have clubs for that sort of thing in Pittsburgh. It's not what you're thinking, I assured him. The dame's a comic character who gets the audience singing. Singing? The words come down on a sort of giant song sheet, I explained, and she, who is really a he, gets the audience to sing along. Emboldened by Erskine Brown's claret, smoother on the tongue but with less of a kick than Chateau Thames' embankment, I broke into a stanza of the song I was introduced to by Robin Hood's masculine mother. I may be just a nipper, but I've always loved a kipper, and so does me loving wife. If you've got a girl, just slip her, a loving golden kipper, and she'll be yours, she'll be yours, she'll be yours for life. Hey! Is that all? The transatlantic judge still seemed puzzled. All I can remember. I think you're wrong, Mr. Rumpel. What? I think you're wrong, and those lines do indeed have some significance along the lines I suggested. And the judge fell silent, contemplating the unusual acts suggested. I see they're doing Aladdin at the Tufnell Park Empire. Do you think the twins might enjoy it, Rumpole? The speaker was Mrs Justice Erskine Brown, Phyllida Trent, as she was in happier days when I called her the Portia of our chambers, still possessed of a beauty that would break the hearts of the toughest prosecutors and make old lags swoon with lust even as she passed a stiff custodial sentence. The twins she spoke of were Tristan and Isolde, so named by her opera-loving husband Claude, who was now bending Hilda's ear on the subject of Covent Garden's latest ring cycle. I think the twins would adore it, just the thing to cure the Wagnerian death wish and bring them into a world of sanity. Sanity? The visiting judge sounded doubtful. With old guys dressed up as mothers? I promise you they'll love every minute of it. And then I made another promise that sounded rash even as I spoke the words. I know I would. I'll take them myself. Thank you, Rumpel. Phyllida spoke in her gentlest judicial voice, but I knew my fate was sealed. 
It'll have to be after Christmas, Hilda said. We've been invited up to Norfolk for the holiday. As she said the word Norfolk, a cold, sweeping wind seemed to cut through the central heating of the Erskine Brown's Islington dining room, and I felt a warning shiver. I have no rooted objection to Christmas Day, but I must say it's an occasion when time tends to hang particularly heavy on the hands. From the early morning alarm call of carols piping on Radio 4 to the closing headlines and a restless, liverish sleep, the day can seem as long as a fraud on the post office tried by Mr Injustice Graves. It takes less than no time for me to unwrap the tie, which I will seldom wear, and for Hilda to receive the annual bottle of lavender water, which she lays down rather than puts to immediate use. The highlights after that are the Queen's speech, when I lay bets with myself as to whether Hilda will stand to attention when the television plays the national anthem, and the thawed-out Safeway bird, followed by port, an annual gift from my faithful solicitor Bonnie Bernard, and pudding. I suppose what I have against Christmas Day is that the courts are all shut and no one's being tried for anything. That Christmas, Hilda had decided on a complete change of routine. She announced it in a circuitous fashion by saying one late November evening, I was at school with Poppy Longstaff. What's that got to do with it? I knew the answer to this question, of course. Hilda's old school has this in common with polar expeditions, natural disasters and the last war. Those who have lived through it are bound together for life and can always call on each other for mutual assistance. Poppy's Eric is rector of Cold Sands, and for some reason or other he seems to want to meet you, Rumpel. Meet me? That's what she said. So does that mean I have to spend Christmas in the Arctic Circle and miss our festivities? It's not the Arctic Circle, it's Norfolk, Rumpel. And our festivities aren't festivities, so yes, you have to go. It was a judgment for which there was no possible appeal. And that comes from the short story by John Mortimer, Rumpole and the Old Familiar Faces. Right. Um, a quick reminder to people. Um, when we send out one of the sticks in the next week or so, uh, you will be getting a card with it from us. So, you know, saying, wish you a Merry Christmas, etc., etc., etc. Last year we sent these out. And a lot of them were returned by people who probably didn't know what they were. So warning in advance, ladies and gentlemen, you will be getting a card from us saying, we wish you a Merry Christmas. Good. And now we've got uh, a, a quiz, which is based on uh, music from TV themes. Um, this is for us here, well, the two people with me here, <laughs> to see if uh, they know what they are as well. And uh, for you... We'll give you some clues afterwards. Uh, or, or you can give yourself massive amount of points as it's Christmas if you can guess the name of uh, the the TV program, possibly the music. Some of them were actually music written for the uh, programs themselves. The type of uh, program it was, sport, documentary, etc., etc., etc. In fact, give you points if you don't even know what it is, because it's just for a bit of fun. Some of the music's quite nice. Uh, so enjoy, let's do the first one.
Yes, from Spartacus. It's, yeah, Cantoria. the Adagio from Spartacus. And that, of course, was a seafaring series from a long time ago. Yeah. And it was... Well, it was the Aeneidian line. Exactly, the Aeneidian line. That's where the boat was moored. Oh, right, OK. Right, here's the next one. I think everyone's got that. Yeah. <laughs> Without we know doubt. what the horse was called, don't we? Uh, that's what the, the music was called as well. Hercules. Hercules. Oh, no, no, it was called Old Ned. Sorry about that. <laughs> <laughs> the music was Old Ned, and it was, of course... Steptoe and Son, Golden and Thank you very much. And the next one, um, this was, uh, to give you a clue, uh, from the Children's Hour, Children's Programme. Ladies and gentlemen, do you remember that one? Peter. Yes, his mummy said you went out without your woolly knickers on, didn't you? Next one is a... Uh, uh, let me think. Um, a sort of um, David... Uh, I can't think of his name, so I'll play it. <laughs> We don't know that one, do we? Yeah, we do. What was it? Johnny Morris, Animal no. Crackers. Animal Magic. Magic, that's right. Yeah. Animal Magic. magic. Yeah, I, couldn't remember, I couldn't remember the name of the programme. Right. Mm. Here we go. Next, well, well you, you've already said that one. That was, of course, this is your You're Alive. And who was the chap that did it? 
Yeah, but there was one prior to him. I don't know his name, but the very, very, very first um, "This Is Your Life" was done by an American um, who was doing the program in the States, and his and the first person to have his life told was, of course, Eamon Andrews, mm. who took over the show. Mm. Shows how old I am, doesn't it? All of us. Right, the next one I think we dedicate to both of you. Well, of course, we know that. Mastermind. Exactly. Originally presented by Magnus Magnesium, or yeah, Magnus Magnusson, as he preferred yeah. to be known. Yes. <laughs> yeah. yeah, he got done for drinking driving eventually, didn't he? Well, allegedly, they had to delay the start of the recording because he'd been indulgent. <laughs> oh. you, can't, you can't speak ill of the dead, and you can't slander them either. So oh, no, get away no, no. With it. Okay, here we go. Next one. Something from a sort of Pathé newsreel, doesn't it? Yeah, you're nearly right. You're nearly right. It's uh, BBC television newsreel. Yeah. 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 How are you doing at home? <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, can you speak? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, they needed clues How on that one. How are you going? Yeah. <laughs> oh, some of these go Alexandra Palace. We're not yeah. going to have Lully Bolero, are we? Yeah. No, these came from 78 Record. Yeah. <laughs> Right, uh, we've only got a couple more. Oh, we've got 12 altogether. We're in number eight. Here we go. Number eight. It's, I know the tune, but I'm trying to I think. I don't know that one. No, that's no? No, yeah. no. It wasn't Sporting Superstars, was it? It was Sport, yes. It was, com- it was, it was the... Oh, was it um, Sports View in midweek? Peter no, Dinner? no, no. World of Sport. Hmm. Oh, ITV. Oh, no. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm oh, sorry, oh, yes. Oh, yeah. 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 You're not speaking our language now. I'm terribly sorry. Well, the language, if you know, if you know the alphabet, you might be all right with this one. Of course, that is... Well, the Americans might call it Z-Cars. Z-Cars, yeah. yeah. Come in, Z-Victor 1. Come in, Z-Victor 1. Z-Victor 2, get them out of the pub. Z-Victor 1 <laughs> to BD, wasn't it? <laughs> what? To BD. Z-Victor oh, that's right, yeah, BD, BD yeah. yeah. 
Uh, right, now Barney said about this programme a little earlier that it was probably the worst programme on television. I think I exaggerate very slightly, but here we go. What was that? <laughs> what was it? It was the inspiration for Acorn Antiques. That's <laughs> <Was> it. <laughs> yes. Yeah. It's Crossroads. Crossroads. Crossroads, exactly. Who played Meg Richardson? Noel Gordon. Noel Gordon. Noel Gordon. Gordon. Yes. Yes, yes, yes. That's very good. How do you know that? <laughs> <laughs> I had a deprived childhood. Now, the next one, apparently... Um, some of the churches across England had to change the time of their services on Sunday because it was so popular. People what decided well, I think to watch, know that decided to watch this yeah. instead of going to church. So here we go. Yeah. Oh, cool, yes, obviously. And uh, it was called, the music was called Piano Parchment. I am really mm. Yeah, yeah. And the last one, now this is, well, I don't know, it's probably about the same age as that one. Um, well, see if you know it. What was that? Van is right. Do you know the name? The, actually, the, this music had a, 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 a not the theme for Van der Belk, but a, another type. I did know the title, but I can't remember. Eye level. Eye level. Yeah. Van der Velk. Yeah. Van der Velk. Yeah. Yes. Exactly. Yes. Right, Brian. Uh, would you like to do your second piece? Oh, we've got a few bits. Yes. Yeah, um, the Oldie magazine runs a monthly competition, and uh, a couple of months ago. Contributors were invited simply to send in a little poem just with the single word title, Treasure. So here's two or three examples of the winning entries from that little competition. My garden 
is a wondrous place, its secrets known to me alone. There, buried deep, are scraps of lace, a handkerchief, a whitened bone. A lady's bra, a pair of tights, the trophies from my nameless crimes, dispersed among a dozen sights, fond memories of wicked times. Some knickers carefully interred, a leather shoe still shiny red, and best of all, now green and furred, a slice or two of mouldy bread. I'll sometimes dig my trophies up to reawaken furtive pleasure from my crimes when just a pup. Now that's what dogs call buried treasure. Next one, bit of a contrast. Seek not treasure in the worldly mart, nor buy and sell illusory bonds and shares, nor striving be outsmarted by the smart, nor greedy growing gorged on bulls and bears. <laughs> Seek not treasure. <laughs> Seek not treasure. In the maiden's eye, the lightsome laughter and the tender hand, so soon they dim and tarnish. Neither try to venture forth in property or land. No human intellect will ever know why markets so exalted and so high so cruelly drop. My young friend, only go and treasure seek in nature's peace. And in thy, uh, oh dear, I'm so sorry, I'm a hypocrite giving you all this moral shit. <laughs> Those paths where I say, venture not. I failed in all the bloody lot. <laughs> Last one. Rather cynical, but I think you'll think, I think you'll agree, quite effective. It's a cry of anguish from a defeated swain. She came to me across the room with smile to lift the darkest gloom. We laughed and joked, we had a chat, we ended up in her small flat. What sensual delights, what pleasure. She called me love, I called her treasure. Alas, the rent was in arrears. She says she's ill, she's full of fears. Sometimes the tears would never stop and she needs this most expensive op. Then to recuperate and rest, she says abroad would be the best. I gave her much, could not refuse. It was, of course, a hoax, a ruse. I'm wary now, much more defensive. These treasures can be most expensive. Now it's back to me now. Um, we're coming up to um, Christmas Day, and as you know, there's ice and snow about. And I'd like to talk about bus drivers. Um, it's very secretive in this country what they teach bus drivers after they have actually taught them how to drive the bus. But however, I've got um, a, a tape specially sent over from America about the second course that bus drivers take after they've learnt actually how to handle the bus, and I'd like to play it for you. Uh, you men have now completed what's known as the basic course in bus driving. In this course, you're going to be presented with actual situations you'll encounter while driving the buses, and it's primarily designed to find out whether you're just going to be, uh, well, good bus drivers, or possibly one of the great all-time bus drivers. <laughs> I'd like to take one of the students, uh, Johnson. You want to get in the bus, uh, 
And, oh, uh, Mrs. Selkirk, you want to get back to your marks back there? Uh-huh. Uh, good. Here, here's the situation, Johnson. Uh, you've just pulled into a stop. You've discharged your passengers. And out of the rearview mirror, uh, you notice this old woman running for the bus. Okay. You want to you start running now, Mrs. Selkirk? <laughs> okay, let's see how Johnson goes about uh, Hold it, hold it, hold it, Johnson. Uh, you're, you're pulling out much too fast, Johnson. <laughs> see, uh, she, she, she gave up uh, about halfway in the block, you see. Yeah, what, what you want to do is just kind of gradually ease out, you see, so uh, you're always holding out the hope they may be able to catch the bus. <laughs> oh, another thing you want to watch, a lot of these old women, they'll, they'll run at three-quarters speed, you see. That, then they'll put on a final burst and they'll catch up with a bus, so. Uh, Graham, you want to be the bus driver? Yes, Mrs. Hulkirk, you want to get back to your mark again? All right, let's try it with Graham. Same situation. All right. You want to you start running again, uh, Mrs. Selkirk? Hmm? Okay, let's see how, how, how Graham handles this situation. All right, fine. Uh, uh, did y'all see how he slammed the door right in her face that time? <laughs> that's, uh, that's known as your perfect pullout. Uh, Oh, one other thing, uh, it wasn't part of the problem, uh, but uh, I want to compliment you on it. You blocked both lanes that time, pulling in. Uh, okay, and Mrs. Selkirk, I think we'll take uh, situation 13 this time. Yeah, you want to you get in the Chevrolet? Mm -hmm. uh, Graham, this is a situation you'll very often encounter. You'll be driving along your route, and uh, all of a sudden this car will pull in front of you, and on the back will be caution student driver or learning to drive, uh, something like that. Okay. All right, Mrs. Elkirk, you want to pull in front of Graham and see how he, how he goes about handling this situation? All right, that, that was fine. That was uh, very good. Uh, could you all see what he did there? Uh, he gets back about 10, 15 car lengths, uh, gets it up to around 60. <laughs> then he gets right behind her, bang, he slams on his brakes, he hits the horn at the same time. Uh, did you all see how the car went out of control there? <laughs> the, the, the minute she dove for the floorboard, it just kind of swerved into the light pole over there. Okay, uh, uh, Mrs. Selkirk, I think this will be the last one. You be the woman with the packages on this one, all right? Okay, uh, Graham, on this one, I'm going to stand behind you because uh, you can't be expected to know this. It's going to take time and a lot of practice. All right, you want to get on the bus, Mrs. Selkirk? That's all right. Fumble, fumble for your change. All right, now start heading toward the back of the bus. That's it. All right, hit your accelerator. All right, hit the brake. Hit the accelerator again. Now your brake. All right, you see how she spun all the way to the front of the bus that time? That's, that's going to take a little practice, a lot of times, uh, 
grab a hold of another passenger. You may hit your brake too soon. All I can tell you is don't get discouraged. Uh, within five, six months, you'll have all of them spinning right to the front of the bus. <laughs> that as probably most of you will know, if not all of you will know, was the fabulous Bob oh, Newhart. Yeah. I've never heard that one before. Really? Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. fabulous. Yeah, I, I, well, I the have famous one it. is the tobacco one. Isn't oh, it? yeah, we had and, that and the and last the, time. And, yeah. and, yeah. and the, the captain, my door is always open. Someone yeah, stole this. That too. <laughs> yeah. The driving. That was, yeah, the driving. Oh, the driving. Was, yeah, yeah. the famous yeah. one, wasn't yeah. it? That was HMS Codfish. That was, no, Barney, sorry. No, I slipped there before. How to follow Bob Newhart? Well, here is some <laughs> advice on buying Christmas presents, as appeared in Vanity Fair in 1915, under the byline P. Brookhaven. The first rule in buying Christmas presents is to select something shiny. If the object chosen is of leather, the leather must look as if it had just been well greased. If of silver, it must gleam with that light which, as the poet so well says, never was on sea or land. Books are very popular for that reason. There's probably nothing in existence which can look so shiny as a collected works of Longfellow, Tennyson or Wordsworth. I have seen a common housefly alight on the back of a Christmas edition of Rabindranath Tagore, which I had given to my Uncle James, and slide the whole length of the volume, eventually shooting off with incredible velocity and stunning itself against the wall. Many smart people, indeed, strew their drawing rooms with books which have been wished on them in the merry season of Yule for no other reason than to encompass the dissolution of such flies as may have escaped the swatting of the lower servants told off for that purpose. They may also be used as mirrors. My only objection to the custom of giving books as Christmas presents is perhaps the selfish one that it encourages and keeps in the game a number of writers who would be far better employed if they abandoned the pen and took to work. Publishers rely on the festive season to help them to get rid of all these bulky volumes which they've published at intervals during the past 12 months to oblige their wives' relations. A more judicious spirit of giving on the part of the public would kill almost entirely the sale of such works as Travels Among the Lesser Known Haunts of the Siberian Eel Vulture, Forgotten Walks Through Old Hoboken, bird life on the lower Mississippi, and the like. Humaneness and consideration for others are the two virtues which every buyer of Christmas presents should possess. His ideal should be to select something which should be capable of being passed on to somebody else, either next Christmas or when some hold-up man who happens to be a friend of the victim announces that he is about to marry. Much misery has been caused in an infinite number of homes by the practice of giving presents which cannot be treated in this way. I recollect handing on to a friend who was contemplating laying the foundations of a future divorce by espousing some girl whose name at the moment escapes me, a singularly repellent claret jug presented to me at Christmas by my aunt Charlotte, which, unknown to me, bore the inscription with fondest love from CBH. The discovery of this among the wedding gifts and my friend's total inability to explain who the fondly loving CBH was gave the bride an advantage from which her lord and master never recovered, and it was only when, at the end of their first year of wedlock, the court separated the happy pair that he found himself once more happily in possession of a latch key. How different a present was that's how different a present was that smoker's ideal companion which I received Christmas nineteen o three It was given to me by the wife of an old college friend, and it had everything. 
including a brass cigar cutter, which makes smoking a loathsome impossibility to the rightly constituted man. I hesitate, for I'm not quite sure of my facts, to make such an accusation, but I rather think the beastly thing included a velvet smoking cap. I gave it away in the autumn of 1904 to another old college friend as a wedding present and thought no more of it. What was my surprise on Christmas morning 1908 to receive it back from a distant cousin? I gave it away once again Christmas 1909, only to unpack it in my home on Christmas morning 1914, this time as the gift of my old friend's wife who had first given it to me in 1903. The thing had completed the full circle and looked as good as new, though it contained no smoking cap. It may be that it never had contained a smoking cap, or possibly the passage of time wrought more heavily on the velvet than on the brass. I confess to a not unmanly wave of sentiment when I beheld it once more and thought of all the good men whom it had enabled to give a handsome and desirable Christmas gift without that expenditure which in these days of the high cost of living it is always so pleasant to avoid. In a month from now, it will be starting out on its travels again, but on a different route, for I am sending it to a friend in Australia, whither I feel sure it has never yet penetrated. The question, what becomes of the Christmas presents, is one which has long vexed thinking men. Every year, a tidal wave of incredibly useless junk bursts upon the metropolis, and somehow or other it is disposed of long before the first mosquito steps down to the New Jersey shore and hails the 23rd Street ferry. A proportion of this, no doubt, is kept working after the manner of my smoker's ideal companion. But the vast majority of Christmas presents simply disappear. My own theory is that they are sold back to the shops whence they emerge next year in another incarnation. The burden of Christmas present giving has of late years been grievously increased by the growing sophistication of the modern child. In the good old days, it was possible to give a child practically anything and receive in return a gratitude which has now gone completely out of fashion. I can still recall thanking with warmth and genuine sincerity an uncle whose annual gift to me consisted of a small box of candy and an orange. But for the modern child, you've got to do better than that. You've got to dig down a bit. You've got to strip off a few from the roll. The modern child has no illusions. You can't hand him anything about Santa Claus. He has got your number. Plus à change, as they say. And although that came under the byline of P. Brookhaven, it was actually written by P.G. Woodhouse. Oh, oh lovely, lovely. lovely. Surprising, yeah. Um, yeah. Well, one more from you, Brian, please. Right home. Well, I do hope that the following background information relating to parliamentary procedures will encourage you, will, audit, will in fact encourage you as to the value of our parliamentary democracy. As Winston Churchill said, the, by far the worst form of government until you consider all the others. <laughs> to become law, the exact text of a bill has to be agreed upon by both houses and receive royal assent. When a bill introduced in one house is amended by the other house, the bill and the amendments are sent back and forth from one to another until they agree, or they may disagree, or amend the amendments, or offer other amendments, and so on and so on. This is often called ping-pong. Ping Bills are carried from one house to the other by one of the clerks at the table, and the whole situation can become pretty complicated. 
And here's an example which I hope will be self-explanatory, says he with a tongue-in-cheek. At one point in the exchanges on the Prevention of Terrorism Bill in 2005, the Commons received this message from the Lords. The Lords insist on certain of their amendments to the Prevention of Terrorism Bill, to which this House has insisted on its disagreement, for which insistence they assign their reasons. They insist on certain of the amendments to which this House has disagreed, for which insistence they assign their reasons. They disagree to the amendments proposed by this House in lieu of the Lord's amendments, for which disagreement they assign their reason. They do not insist on the remaining amendments to which this House has disagreed, and they agree to the remaining amendments made by this House on which this House has insisted. Is that all clear? Good. As a bill goes back and forth, these amendments, proposals and counter-proposals are made. The master copy of the bill is marked up with what each House has done, and on each occasion in a different colour. The House bill is prepared by the first House on yellow paper interleaved with green blank pages for amendments to be added. Second House amendments are pasted onto the interleaves marked in the bill in black. But then the first house will amend it in red. Second house amends in green. First house back in violet. Second house back in brown. First house to blue. Second house back in yellow. First house amends in pink. Second house amends in iron. Iron. First house amends in silver. Second in indigo. First house in gold. Second house then in light green. And so forth until the first house amends in orange and the second house amends in dark grey. If the bill is still going to and fro after these 15 exchanges, which no bill has yet done, it has to be said that the clerks in the two public bill offices will have to think of something else to do. What happens if they're colourblind? <laughs> <laughs> right, just to remind you, you will be getting cards with your sticks at some point, so please keep them this time and don't send them back. Um, uh, for people that drink, uh, drinking really can give you Dutch courage, scientists say. Uh, 40% uh, 40% percentage of those who enjoy spirits said they felt sexier as a result. So there's every reason to drink a bottle of whiskey at Christmas. Uh, anybody got anything else they want to say? I'd like to wish you a very Merry Christmas, but we have one special guest, which is Malcolm McLeod from the Worcester Cathedral News. Apparently, every so often, Malcolm or somebody else from the Worcester Cathedral News will be coming along uh, to read stories from their magazine, which is monthly, quarterly, 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 I'm told. Uh, thank you, Malcolm. Um, so that, that's something to look forward to, and this will make our programme quite a bit longer. So I hope you enjoy what Malcolm has to say, and I will hand you over to him. Hi, and welcome to Worcester's uh, Cathedral News. My name is Malcolm McLeod, and uh, for those of you listening, you probably gather I'm not a local of Worcester, uh, albeit I've lived here for a number of years. I'm actually a Glaswegian, uh, grew up in the city of Glasgow, and I moved south due to work commitments and never moved back, but visit Glasgow on a regular occasion. Um, the Worcester Cathedral News is a magazine which is published every quarter. 
dates mid-January, mid-April, mid-July and mid-October. The editorial team consists of Susan McLeod, Rebecca Tovey and Chris Guy. Uh, Susan McLeod is the operational manager of the cathedral. Rebecca is her assistant. And Chris Guy is actually the archaeologist for the cathedral. The Worcester uh, Cathedral News, we have an agenda uh, whereby we have the Dean's Welcome, update from friends of the cathedral, some fundraising news, the community work and, and news around the community, educational news, Cathedral Enterprise News, which is the cathedral shop and the cathedral cafe, some news on the heritage of the cathedral, uh, and finally, the cathedral events, uh, and on this occasion, it's events throughout December. So if I could move on with uh, a message from the Dean. The Dean is Peter Atkinson, uh, and has been uh, announced that the cathedral has been successful in its first round application for funds from the Heritage Lottery for the conversion of the undercroft of College Hall to be our new centre for learning, heritage and arts for the whole community. Jane Rogers, our Director of Fundraising and Development, writes in the newsletter about the timescale and the task of for the fundraising. There is much to be done, but the good news is that we can now look forward to bringing this long dreamt of project to fruition. I take this opportunity to salute both the vision and the hard work of those who have contributed to this successful outcome. Jane Rogers and her predecessor, Nick Drew, Ben Smith, Director of Education, and his predecessor, Sue Edney, Camilla Finlay, Surveyor of the Fabric, and her predecessor, Chris Romain, and of course, our indefatigable steward, Les, Les West, beg your pardon, who retires at the moment of the triumph uh, at this time in the cathedral. The opportunity which has now been open to us is that of providing excellent facilities in a historic building for principally our school visits, but also for a wider community use. Taken together with College Hall and the Song School, the Cathedral will have an outstanding set of rooms for large-scale and small-scale activities. We shall be given a constructive purpose to the last remaining usable space from the Cathedral Monastery. News from the Friends, uh, Sue Carpenter is Chairman of the Friends. This year the Friends have made several grants to the Cathedral, including one of the new information panels in the Cathedral. We are pleased that one panel is about to be the Friends telling who we are and what we do. We also have given grants towards new lighting in the library and for smart new workwear that you may have seen the vergers wearing in the Cathedral. In August, the Friends were glad to join in the Three Choirs Festival. We commissioned the Canticles by Thomas Hewitt-Jones and their first performance of the Three Choirs Evensong broadcast on Radio 3. And the festival reception we sponsored featuring Radio 4 newsreader and announcer Zeb Sones as well as supported and very well enjoyed. Our social events continue to be successful, especially our Stanley Baldwin evening in August. We have had our annual out outing, this time to the National Memorial Arboretum, and, as I write, booking is going well for the lecture by Bishop, Bishop John in November about his role as the Queen's Almoner. Our Christmas lunch is already sold out, and we are organising a second one. By the time you read this, it is probable that our amended constitution will have been adopted at our AGM, pro providing for a revised model of governance 
that will make for more efficient working and also involve more representation from the cathedral community. As ever, I'm grateful to my fellow officers, Elaine and Stephen, and to Claire for their continued hard work. Fundraising news. A number of years ago, a temporary facility was provided. It was a huge improvement. It was only the, the national lottery success is the, uh, the news I was actually looking for for fundraising. Worcester Cathedral has received initial support for a 1.2 million uh, national lottery grant to conserve and bring into public use for the first time the 12th century undercroft of College Hall. The Heritage Lottery Fund has awarded development funding of £168,000 to the Cathedral for it to progress this vision and create a unique venue to facilitate learning, arts and heritage for the whole community and to install a lift to provide access for all. Upon successful completion of the development phase, the Cathedral will then apply for Stage 2 grant of just over £1 million to deliver the project over a three-year period with a view to opening the new centre in 2020. Also included in the National Lottery Fund project is the conservation of the over-life-size carving of Christ and Majesty in College Hall. This project will help the Cathedral to better understand, interpret and conserve this internationally significant 13th century monument. A learning centre for heritage and arts for the whole community. The project will convert and secure the medieval undercroft for sustainable use and provide essential spaces and facilities to support the growing educational programme within the Cathedral. Worcester Cathedral began its organised educational work over two, two decades ago without any facilities. A number of years ago, temporary facility was provided. It was a huge improvement, but it only accommodates one classroom and has little storage and no dedicated toilet facilities. The facility is now in poor condition and no longer fit for purpose. The plans, the proposed plans for the undercroft will create two teaching rooms, visitor storage space, a reception area, administration space and toilet facilities. The conversion of the cathedral's medieval undercroft into a new educational centre will provide an innovative, versatile venue for both community learning for both Worcestershire and the surrounding regions. It will continue the strong commitment to, learn, to the learning that forms an integral part of the cathedral's Benedictine heritage, while facilitating engagement with a much wider of socio-economic groups, non-traditional constituencies than has either, hitherto been possible. Prior to some support submitting the bid, the cathedral consulted widely and the proposals have received strong support from the City Council, Local Enterprise Partnership, Chamber of Commerce, schools, colleges and the university, community groups, the business community and local individuals. The new Centre for Learning, Heritage and Art support local, regional, national priorities for tourism, heritage and education. The £500,000 challenge. During the development phase, the cathedral will progress its consultations with the community, particularly with audiences who don't currently engage with the cathedral to develop new and inspiring activities. They will review access to the undercraft to, undercroft to ensure that it is available to a wide audience. The development phase also includes securing £500,000 in matched fundings. If successful, the Stage 2 lottery grant will be for just over £1 million, 
which has already been earmarked for this project. This means that every donation made in this project will be trebled in value by the Lottery Fund. The Cathedral warmly invites support and charitable trusts, local businesses and individuals. Donations and grants are tax-free and can be spread over a number of years. The fundraising brochure can be accessed via the homepage of the Worcester Cathedral website at worcestercathedral.co.uk, contacting the Development Office on 01905 732912 or email at development at uk. Community News In Living Faith, a new cathedral exhibition in the nave uh, and it's been produced by uh, Canon Georgina Byrne. What goes on in Worcester Cathedral? Those of us who work, volunteer or worship there in the cathedral is a living and often very lively place. As well as being full of history and architectural beauty, this is not necessarily obvious to people who visit for an hour or two. This new exhibition in the North Transept gives people the opportunity to see what goes on day by day. Using backlit panels, this display will brings together the worship, work and life of the cathedral. In a bright and engaging way, there will be panels about the Diocese of Woodger, reminding visitors that our cathedral is one of one church among many churches who seek to serve their communities and share the love of Christ with others. There is a panel about diocese overseas, links to another about our own connections and with the city and the people of Worcestershire. Through the whole of the exhibition, there runs a ribbon made of a scriptural text, making clear that we do what comes out when what we believe in. In front of the panels is a clear desk containing Sunday's Gospel and the Diocesan Prayer Diary for the week ahead. The exhibition has been generously supported by the Friends of Worcester Cathedral and a panel pays tribute to the contributions that they have made and continue to make. Heritage News the Witty Pear Tree. Uh, the Witty Pear Tree is a tree that, which is close to the south side of the chapter house in, uh, the, by the cathedral. The Witty Pear, otherwise known as the True Service Tree. This species was first found in the wire forest in 1677 and cuttings from this tree were grown at Arley Castle in the early 19th century. Other descendants were planted in the old palace grounds and on College Green and this tree is probably one of them. Another of his trees was planted by minor canon Woodward in the early 1900s, but it was later felled by another canon because it obscured his view of the cricket ground. Next time you're at the cathedral, take time to look at this rare tree. Educational news and training for the future. Postgraduate trainee teachers of religious studies, history and geography from across the region visited the cathedral in September and the Education Department's First Humanities Teaching Conference. Organised in conjunction with the University of Worcester's Institute of Education, the conference gave those training to teach in a secondary school a detailed insight into the wide range of educational opportunities the cathedral offers to enrich students' understanding of the humanities. Following an introductory talk on the pedagogy of learning outside the classroom and the often neglected educational potential for our country's cathedrals and greater churches, 
Trainees were taken on a specially devised tour of the cathedral, demonstrating how the building can be used as a tool for learning in their specific subject area. Geography trainees enjoyed a workshop and practical demonstration led by the cathedral's master stonemason, while historians and they had the opportunity to tour the library and see its unique and extensive collection of medieval manuscripts and rare books. Trainees also experienced the cathedral's educational programme through the eyes of the pupils by trying, to, uh, trying out several workshops that are regularly delivered to visiting school groups. Religious studies trainees explored the meaning and significance of key Christian symbols in our place of Christian worship tour, while historians looked at the dissolution of the monasteries and its impact on Worcester Priory through a role-play workshop. The conference gave trainees a much better appreciation of how the local cathedrals can support them in delivering the subject while offering students of all ages a highly engaging and memorable learning experience. If your trainee or more experienced teacher interested in learning more about the cathedral's educational programme, please contact Benjamin Smith, Director of Education and Learning, by telephoning 01905 732 919 or email bensmith at worcestercathedral.org.uk. And now into Cathedral Enterprises. Cathedral Enterprises are actually the Cathedral Cafe and the Cathedral Shop. Um, the, it, within the cafe, the weather has now changed and the nights are, are certainly drawing in, or have drawn in. The Cloister Cafe has introduced steak and ale, pie and warming stews to their specials board. We will still be serving lovely light lunches and salads such as prawn mayonnaise or quiche Lorraine with new potatoes or homemade soup and delicious homemade cakes and cream teas. Come in, have a look at our menu and pop in for a cake and a cuppa. Seasonal gifts for the cathedral shop. In November our thoughts turn to remembrance and this year the shop is proud to be selling the book Life After Tragedy, a series of re reflections on aspects of faith in time of war and conflict, written largely by members of the Cathedral Chapter. The book was launched in July and has been extremely well received. No sooner we passed the 11th of November and uh, a time of sombre reflection, we seem to be plunged pell-mell into the frenzy of Christmas shopping. Hopefully the cathedral shop can bring some sense of proportion to these frantic few weeks with a range of gifts, ideas, uh, which reflect the meaning of Christmas. We have a comprehensive stock of Christmas cards, calendars, and this year for the first time there is a Worcester Cathedral calendar, Advent calendars, not to mention CDs, and a selection of books about the nativity, especially aimed for children. Our expanded range of budget CDs is attracting attention and praise from all quarters. Likewise, a selection of books, historical and spiritual, will provide interest for the discerning reader. The shop is also able to obtain particular recordings and book titles to order. The Christmas from Worcester CD, released last Christmas, is still available at £10 and make an ideal gift. This was a runaway top seller last year, and briefly, and even briefly entered Classic FM's Top 50. Wow. It's a must, and you must get one this year. 
Also, new, also newly released is the Cathedral Chamber Choir CD, Royal Worcester, a rousing selection of choral favourites. There really is something for everyone at the Cathedral Shop. And finally, uh, from Worcester Even News, I'm going to run through some events for the month of December. Beginning on Friday 1st and Saturday 2nd of December, uh, 10 a.m. to 4 p.m. And Sunday the 3rd of December, 12.30 to 3 p.m., we have Christmas Fair around the cloister. Festive craft stalls line the medieval cloister offering tempting treats and Christmas gifts. Friday the 1st of December till Tuesday the 2nd of January, we have an exhibition called In Search of Light in, in the Dean's Chapel. Sunday 3rd of December at 6.30pm, we have a candlelit Advent procession with carols. Wednesday 6th of December at 7.30pm, Advent Lecture, which is Exploring the Gospel of St Mark. How to Tell a Story is the Beginning and the Ending of Mark by Canon Dr Georgina Byrne in the Geston, which is in 15 College Green. Wednesday 6th of December uh, to Thursday the 4th of January, experience Christmas around the cathedral. This is a series of installations around the cathedral for families to follow and reveal the true meaning of Christmas. Saturday 9th December till Thursday 4th of January, from 9am to 6pm, there's a festival of Christmas trees in the cloister, glittering avenues of decorated trees celebrating the festive season. It's free, free admission uh, and donations are appreciated. Saturday 9th September at 7.30pm, we have Handel's Messiah. It's a concert by the Worcester Festival Choral Society. Tickets are available via the website www.ticketsource.co.uk forward slash WFCS. Sunday 10th of December at 8pm, we have Chapter 8 concert in the Chapter House. Tickets are available by phoning 01905 On Wednesday 13th of December at 7.30, Advent Lecture, Exploding the Gospel of St Mark. Mark's portrayal of Jesus, and this is by Canon Dr. Michael Brierley, again in the Geston of 15 College Green. Saturday, 16th December at 7:30, we have Christmas Cheer as a concert of Christmas favourites with an audience with audience participation. It's directed by Dr. Peter Nardone and performed by Worcester Cathedral Choirs and the Worcester Festival Choral Society. Tickets are available from Worcester Live by phoning 01905-611-427. On Sunday the 17th of December, 4pm, we have music and readings for Christmas. It's a carol service sung by the Worcester Cathedral Voluntary Choir. There is an event on Wednesday the 20th of December. Uh, unfortunately, the particular production has already sold out, but it's the Snowman's Concert. As I say, unfortunately, it's a sellout at this moment in time. Thursday, 21st of December at 7.30pm, we have the Worcester News Carol Service. It's free admission by ticket, and they are available in advance from Worcester News. 
Friday 22nd and Saturday 23rd of December at 6.30pm is the Cathedral Carol Services, traditional service of nine lessons and carols sung by the Cathedral Choir. Tickets are not required, however, please arrive early to ensure a seat. And that's events for December at Worcester Cathedral. And thanks very much for listening and goodbye for now and hopefully I speak uh, in a couple of months' time. Thank you. Bye. Thank you very much, Malcolm. That was brilliant. And uh, we look forward to seeing you again in perhaps a couple of months' time. Um, Right. I'd like to say Merry Christmas from everyone here. Merry Christmas to you all. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. Feliz Navidad. Buon Natale. And here we go with the play out music and I do wish you a very, very, very Merry Christmas. Yeah. <laughs>